the pinnacle of the Muslim power and prosperity was under the Mughal zone. That's what starts now, so about 500 years ago. They eventually ended up ruling India for about 300 years. Babar was a descendant of Genghis Khan. So these are the Mongols. So that's, that, that's his origin, that's his ancestry. Uh, that was the same Genghis Khan who destroyed, you know, who's ruled, you know, they destroyed the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad just before that. And large parts of the Muslim world, now the same descendant of his comes and raises the banner of Islam in most of the Indian lands, in addition to Afghanistan and many other um, surrounding areas. That's why you've got this Babri Masjid, they say he built it. Right, so the Babri Masjid is uh, named after him. He was an outstanding military leader, very wise man. And he, the reason he was so successful is very able to absorb the cultural and religious diversity in India. That was the tough part of India, the religion, the religious and cultural diversity of India. Uh, huge number of races, languages, religions, you had to just bring them together. This pretty much appears to be the main recipe for governance in India, as opposed to what exists now. This is why it's getting worse, and this is why people are worried, because they're trying to make it one-tracked. Muslims are a minority in India, they're only about 15 to 20 percent maximum, but that still gives them about 200 million. 200 million just in India alone today. Pakistan has another 200 million, Bangladesh has another 150 million or something like that. I mean, if you put that, if you put just the Indian Muslims together of present-day India, that's more than the Muslims in the Middle East today. Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, hamdan kathiran, tayyiban, mubarakan fih, mubarakan alayh. Kama yuhibu rabbuna wa yarda, jalla jalaluh, wa amma nawaluh, wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidil habibil mustafa. صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين وقال تعالى والله متم نوره ولو كره الكافرون <coughs> Dear friends, this for me was actually a very uh, interesting uh, topic when it was broached to me. Uh, it's a great idea, I think, because I've always had an uh, interest in the history of India. When I say India, I mean Indian subcontinent. So it's a much greater than what is the India of today. And to understand how things have reached um, and um, yeah, got to where it is, uh, one thing you have to remem remember about the Indian subcontinent is that the people of the Indian subcontinent are travelers. Uh, they're very adventurous, they're very enterprising. How did that all come about? And today you see that there's Indians throughout the world. When I mean Indians, I mean Indians and present-day Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and uh, people from Burma, Myanmar and even parts of Afghanistan. That's what I mean by the subcontinent. There's subcontinent people pretty much throughout the world wherever you go, right? What would that have been like? There's Muslims in all of these countries. In many countries, I mean, I've traveled to many countries in Africa, literally in Africa. In, uh, if you travel to the Caribbean, uh, and of course, many countries in the West and so on, you'll see many people from the subcontinent that have played uh, you know, major roles in a lot of these places. Now, in 40 minutes, it's going to be extremely difficult uh, to 
contain a history of the subcontinent. It's going to be very, very difficult. You know, just one or two incidents would take you 40 minutes. So we're talking about a very, very large area. A very, very large area. Very large population. I think today the population of the subcontinent would be at least a billion of the whole subcontinent put together. It's got a very, very long and varied history. We're actually only going to start 1400 years ago, otherwise it's had a much, much longer history, obviously. And there's been many, many rulers and dynasties, many, many ruling systems down there. Of course, within all of that, many events, individuals and stories that definitely deserve a mention, but uh, limit of time, we're going to have to just suffice uh, with a basic timeline and then we'll try to zoom into certain, um, uh, certain specific events. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for assistance, we can't cover it all. The Muslims, we can definitely say that Muslims arriving in India has eventually, we can say this from right now, from what we actually see today, is that they've had an impact around the whole world. How did that all begin? So firstly, if we go back to uh, just about 20 years after the Prophet starts his call, and the Prophet's mission takes off in Mecca, in the Hijaz, in Mecca, Mukarramah, Medina, Munawwara, around that time. Just about around that time, and actually before that, you had Arab merchants that used to visit uh, parts of India, especially the, the, the western coast, specifically Kokan, uh, which is essentially just south of Bombay today, and north of Bombay, which is the Gujarat coast. So Bombay is kind of in, uh, in Maharashtra. And above that starts the state of Gujarat, which continues all the way up to towards Sindh in Pakistan. So they used to come on that coast and then further south on the Malabar coast, which is now going more towards the Kerala side of things down. If you look at uh, any map of India, you'll be able to see these are the three major areas of the western coast. And because there used to be a trade between the Indians uh, before Islam and the Arabs. So how Islam initially spread was actually through some of the merchants. Right, through some of the merchants, they'd heard about Islam, they'd embraced Islam from, the, uh, from, uh, from Makkah, Mukarram, Medina, Munawwara, and now they'd actually come and they told people about the belief in one God and this religion that does not distinguish between Arab or non-Arab except through piety. As I said, this is about 20 years after the beginning of Islam. So now slowly, slowly, you, you get small... Uh, you get the beginning of the spread of Islam in different parts of India. The place where it probably had the earliest and greatest impact, but which is probably relatively less known, is islands just off the Kerala coast that are called the uh, Lakshadweep Islands. They're a very, very pristine set of islands down there, 90, 97% Muslim, and absolutely blue waters and the oceans and everything is quite amazing. Uh, that is where the Sheikh called, uh, uh, Sheikh called Sheikh Ubaidullah, probably around the year 661, um, he ended up there on a shipwreck. And then he went from village to village and mashallah, people accepted his call about Islam. And uh, he, came, he came from Makkah Mukarramah. He came from Makkah Mukarramah. And there's stories about him seeing the Prophet ﷺ first in his dream, telling him to go to these lands. He ends up in this... Uh, uh, on, these, on this island or, uh, or um, in this area which has multiple islands actually and mashallah people become Muslim there and until now you got 97% which are Muslim at that time um, however in terms of uh, larger 
uh, amounts of people converting to Islam or how Islamic rule came into India was when there was a king of Sindh, which is in present-day Pakistan. So Karachi is actually in the province uh, or the state or whatever it's called of Sindh in Pakistan. Pakistan has four major states and one of them is called Sindh. Uh, that is, uh, was ruled by a, uh, obviously a non-Muslim at that time. What he did was he assaulted some Muslim merchants and captivated their women. And this was during the Umayyad times. This is when Hajjaj ibn Yusuf is the governor for Abdul Malik ibn Marwan and others. Right. So this is a time when India includes Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan and Nepal as well. So this, this person's name was Raja Dahir. Dahir, that was his name. And Walid ibn Abdul Malik, the Umayyad Khalif, Walid ibn Abdul Malik, he gives a direct response. He sends Muslim armies under Muhammad bin Qasim. You guys must have heard this story. This is a very well-known story. Muhammad bin Qasim al thaqafi He is related to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And that's in about 672. He manages to, in, at the age of 17 with an army, he manages to conquer Sindh, the Sindh area of Pakistan. That's why some of the earliest scholarships that have impacted um, Islamic scholarships, not earliest scholars, they're Sindhi scholars. You got scholars from the second to third century from Sindh, Muhaddithin, Abu Ma'shara Sindhi and many others, and you see their names. But it was only Sindh that was under Islamic rule at that time, not the rest of India. India has, uh, India, you have to remember, has multiple languages. We're talking about languages in the hundreds. Going to one report I read is over 800 languages, right? That could be, it doesn't have to be full-blown languages, but definitely with lots of variation. It's got, uh, you know, you go to many Arab countries and you see within that one country that the food is going to be the same wherever you go. In many countries, the food is the same uh, wherever you go. There's not really much of a difference. You go to India, the food cuisine changes you know, from every hundred miles or something. SubhanAllah, even in Gujarat, the food is quite different in different areas. And then South India, North India, Kashmir is totally different. Beng uh, Bengal is different. Assam is different. And so on and so forth. We're talking about uh, really lots of different peoples, ethnicities. The Northern Indians and the Southern Indians are actually a different people. Most of us which who tend to be from Northern India, we're considered to be Indo-Aryans. The southern Indians, they consider to be Dravidians by ethnicity. They're totally different people. They're much more, I mean, us northern Indians tend to be more louder and a bit more, you know, um, yeah, much louder, I would say. I've been to South India and the guy's arguing and I'm like, what? They're like, like very silent argument. I said, subhanAllah, you know, we're very, very different. So India has a variation of people, right, of various different um, uh, ethnicities and so on. Anyway, then successive battles continue to take place be between these Umayyads, you know, um, uh, and various Indian kingdoms, right? India was not always ruled by a single entity. There were various different kingdoms because everybody was so different. It's very difficult to get people together. So yeah, Muslims have been ruling India since then, but that doesn't mean all of India. I think there's been two or three instances where eventually it took over all of India, but there's been Islam in India for all of those years. Eventually what happened is that Muslims carved out some areas from Western and Northern India primarily. So Northern India, Sindh, and then some parts of Western India. But none resulted in a full Muslim empire in India yet. And then eventually with uh, about 132 Hijri, 
That's when uh, the Abbasids came to power, the Umayyads were deposed, and then after that, many of the battles were stopped. Then uh, the, the, the main person that comes in now is the, are the Ghaznawids. Now, as the name suggests, Ghaznawids, they're from Ghazni. Now, Ghazni is in Afghanistan today. So you have the Ghaznawid state under the leadership of uh, Sultan Mahmud al-Ghaznawi, very well known, right? He had in total about 17 campaigns and eventually he received the title of Alexander II, right? Because of uh, the amount that he, uh, you, you know, the kind of uh, uh, efforts that he managed to uh, put out there. So the Ghaznawid uh, state was founded in the city of Ghaznawi, uh, sorry, Ghazni in nine, 961. And it was founded by Al-Takin. So these are Turkic. In fact, if you look at the majority of the rulers that the Muslim world has had, they've been Turkic in origin. You've had Arabs, you've had the Abbasids and the Umayyads, the Fatimids, they've all been Arabs. Ayyubids have been Kurdish. However, if you look at the Samanids, if you look at the Ghaznawids, if you look at uh, the Seljuks, the Mamluks, and there's been three different groups of Mamluks, two in Egypt and then one in India, which we're going to talk about. And then, of course, the Ottomans, they've all been Turkish. So you could probably say that the majority has been Turkic, not Turkish, Turkic, Turkish, Turkey is a new idea. They actually came from the steppes and uh, Turkey today was more, uh, you know, the land of the Crusaders and so on. That was taken over by the Seljuks first and then the Ottomans consolidated the rest of it. Right? And then we have what we have today. It's a very interesting idea. And then of course the Mughals, they're Turkic in origin. They came from the Fargana Valley. And they ruled probably the longest in the Indian subcontinent. And uh, the, probably the most powerful uh, Muslim uh, rulers in India have been uh, the Mughals. So the Ghaznawids is where it starts. And they took over. The, their first battle for India was around in the 1000. So just you know, over a thousand years ago. Uh, it was this by Mahmud Ghaznawi and so on. This was followed by about 16 campaigns, um, after which Islam spread more in North India, you know, probably beyond Sindh in North India. And eventually that was, you could say, that was, you could say, the founding cornerstone for the consolidation of Islamic rule in the region that then extends to at least eight centuries after that. Right. So after you have sinned, this is the, you know, the, major, uh, the, the, the major role played here was by the Ghaznawids to now lay foundation for Muslims to carry on from there. The Ghaznawid dynasty unfortunately did not last, uh, survive very long after the death of uh, the, the greatest of their sultans, Mahmud of Ghazna. Uh, that was, he died in 1030, right? So 30 years after the, 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 the first uh, sin, uh, what is it, millennium? The first millennium, yes, that was the first millennium. And then eventually actually soon collapsed um, at the hands of the next dynasty, which is the Muslim Ghurids. So these are the Ghurids uh, who continue to expand uh, the, the Islamic rule in India. They were descendants, now these were different, they were descendants of Afghan tribes, right? So the Afghans have played their parts in India as well. And they had entered into Islam around the 10th century anyway. And they put them, they initially were under the service of the Ghaznawids, but eventually they established their own state. It's happened a lot of times. And after the last Ghaznawids, they carried on uh, into India as well. 
They stormed the plains of northern India. They were able to control a large area there. The most famous of the Ghurids now was Shihabuddin Muhammad al-Ghuri. Right? Unfortunately, their state as well didn't last very long. They, uh, it ended with his death as well. However, the one thing they did was during their time, they managed to provide a basis for what would eventually become known, and you have to remember this, the Sultanate of Delhi. The Delhi Sultanate, that's a really major part because that's where a lot of things happened from. That was in 1206, so 200 years later. And then many dynasties followed the Ghurids, the first of which was the Mamluks. These aren't the Mamluks of Egypt and the Levant that are more well known, right? That had direct access or control and um, alliance with the Abbasids, right? That's a whole different history. The most prominent of these people, if you've been to India or you go to India, you will come in Delhi, you will see a, a famous landmark, which is the Qutb Minar. It's this very long tower. I've been there at least, I think, twice. And uh, so that was built by Qutbuddin Aybak. Qutbuddin Aybak, one of the most prominent le leaders. Uh, so he was actually a, a leader under, as I said, the Ghori, Shihabuddin al-Ghori. But after the fall of the Ghurid state, he became, he established the Mamluk state in India. And that's when it became known as the Sultanate of Delhi. So Delhi became, there's been other areas of India, other cities like Lahore and a few other towns that have been the center of Indian rule. Delhi was not necessarily always, un, uh, was not necessarily the place where people ruled from. And remember there were different, Sultan Tipu was never in Delhi, he was more south. Um, so the Mamluks only ruled for about 90 years. So you've had the Ghaznavids, the Ghurids, and now the Mamluks. Other dynasties followed, and then the next major one was the Khilji uh, dynasty. That began in 1290, only lasted about 31 years, but you'll hear the name the Khilji, the Khiljis. This was then replaced by the Tughlaq state. That held, they then held this, the Sultanate of Delhi for nearly a century. Um, they, they eventually managed to consolidate most of the area of present-day India at least, as well as many of the neighboring countries today, which would include uh, present-day Afghanistan and Pakistan, for example. However, just like every other, every other state, the Tughlaq state also um, eventually withered out, and then there were more unrest in India. There was no more, they weren't any more subject to a single sultan. There was a lot more chaos now, lots of different areas. Very difficult to manage India, right? The last dynasty to rule the Delhi Sultan were the Lodis. The Lodis, right? Sikandar Lodi and all these people. That was between 1451 now to 1526. So we're getting about 500 years ago. Until eventually they, their state fell at the hands of the exceptional leader. Now this is where Zahiruddin Babar comes in. This is the start of the Mughals, the founder of the Mughal state in India. Where did he come from? He came from where the Fargana Valley in present-day Uzbekistan. The Fargana Valley is this amazing place. Uh, if you go to Uzbekistan, people don't usually, uh, you know, in their short excursions there, they don't usually go to the Fargana, but you should. Many, many scholars came from there, and that is also where the Mughals came from. Thus, the Delhi, Sultanate, uh, the Delhi Sultanate, which had shone for about 320 years, that eventually declined, during which the region combined a unique blend of Indian and Islamic civilizations. Lots of architecture had flourished at that time, and, and, and so on. The, 
the pinnacle of the Muslim power and prosperity was under the Mughal zone. That's what starts now, so about 500 years ago. They eventually ended up ruling India for about 300 years. Right. Babar was a descendant of Genghis Khan. So these are the Mongols. So that's, that, that's his origin, that's his ancestry. Uh, that was the same Genghis Khan who destroyed, you know, who's ruled, you know, they destroyed the capital of the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad just before that. And large parts of the Muslim world, now the same descendant of his comes and raises the banner of Islam in most of the Indian lands, in addition to Afghanistan and many other um, surrounding areas. That's why you've got this Babri Masjid, they, he built it. Right, so the Babri Masjid is uh, named after him. He was an outstanding military leader, very wise man. And he, the reason he was so successful is very able to absorb the cultural and religious diversity in India. That was the tough part of India. The religion, the religious and cultural diversity of India. Uh, huge number of races, languages, religions, you had to just bring them together. This pretty much appears to be the main recipe for governance in India, as opposed to what exists now. This is why it's getting worse, and this is why people are worried, because they're trying to make it one tract. Muslims are a minority in India, they're only about 15 to 20% maximum, but that still gives them about 200 million. 200 million just in India alone today. Pakistan has another 200 million, Bangladesh has another 150 million or something like that. I mean, if you put that, if you put just the Indian Muslims together of present-day India, that's more than the Muslims in the Middle East today, right? If you don't count North Africa, you count the Middle East, you know, the Gulf states and uh, Syria and all these, there's more Muslims in India. That's 200 million, that's not a small number. But the majority have been Hindu all the time. The Muslims never rule by the sword as such. Uh, most of the conversions had been for different reasons, most of it because of just the softness that they saw, the spirituality that they saw. And before, people would run away from Hinduism to Buddhism, because Buddhism didn't have a class system. And India's always had this caste system, a very, very rigorous, strict caste system where the higher classes, they rule the lower classes, and the, rule, the lower castes don't have uh, much privilege at all. They look down upon and, and so on. So they would escape to Buddhism. And when Islam came, um, uh, some people in some places they like to say that uh, in some countries which have, uh, have Buddhism right now they, they give India as an example that Muslims wiped out Buddhism not, it wasn't some kind of aggressive wipeout it's just that people no longer wanted Buddhism they, they found Islam it was just much more realistic for them and much more comprehensive for them so people started to embrace Islam in that sense for multiple other reasons multiple other reasons as well so Zahiruddin Babur is, uh, as I said, 1530. A number of other great leaders after him. His, um, his son, son was Humayun. Uh, he was only 22 years old when he uh, took the, the throne after his father died. Initially, he wasn't very uh, strong and organized, but later he managed to get things back to normal by 1556. However, um, the, most, uh, the, the strongest of them after Babur it had to be his son. And he ascended the throne when he was only 13 years old. And that was Jalaluddin Akbar. He was very powerful, very enlightened, but a bit crazy and left, left a weird legacy as well. Right? Um, 
nobody thought at 13 that he's going to do much. So that obviously impacted him later. But his rule finally extended to five decades, from 1556 to 1605. So that's five decades he ruled for. He had a good amount of time. And his state expanded to eventually include Gujarat, Bengal, Kashmir, and Sindh, Kandahar in Afghanistan, and all of these areas. So now he has a huge scope there. And his forces moved to other areas and took other areas as well. The state really flourished under his time. He was able to really bring, I mean, he even married non-Muslims, you, know, uh, you know, under what terms and conditions, uh, you know, th there's uh, lots of discussion about that. But he really tried to bring everybody together and a bit too much where he tried to eventually start a new deen called deen akbari or deen ilahi the divine religion where you had bits of islam bits of hinduism uh, uh, he prohibited the consumption of cows and and a lot of other things but eventually mashallah with the likes of sheikh ahmed said hindi rahimahullah and others i've got a different lecture on him that you can listen to alhamdulillah allah subhanahu wa ta'ala managed to revive islam again in india and uh, whatever the harms were there from akbar now after akbar his son was jahangir jahangir was a much better person much more inclined to the religion afterwards akbar was very ideologically driven jahangir was a bit more laid back that's why it was easier to uh, it was easier to convince him and mashallah Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi managed to do that with him But it was then his son Jahangir uh, eventually left as well And then his son Shah Jahan Now everybody must know Shah Jahan, right? Um, it was his time, that was a time of great renaissance, architectural renaissance in India That's the time when you have the Taj Mahal, the Red Fort, the Jama Masjid of Delhi Now I, I, I have to stop here, I said I'm going to try to zoom in uh, But I'm, I'm definitely conscious of the time the Jama Masjid of Delhi is a place. How many of you have been to the Jama Masjid of Delhi? Right? Uh, I don't know if you, if you feel anything down there, but every time I just want to go there and there's a very special feeling there in the Jama. It's this massive structure that you have to climb stairs to get to the top of. It's like on a plateau, this really, really amazing, awesome redstone. And it's got a massive courtyard. I wish they could just keep it a bit cleaner, right? And then the Masjid itself. And you could just tell there's a buzz there, there's a vibe there, and I would just would love to have gone back in time, you know, 400 years and seen when the great scholars would come there and give their discussions and the debates would take place and the education. It's now surrounded by markets and these old areas of Delhi. Behind there is the Chandi Chalk and all of that. I used to just go, I was studying in India, you know, for, for a year and I would come to Delhi and just wander around, you know, just trying to understand the history because it was around that time when Thousands of scholars were massacred by the British much later on, right? That place has seen a lot of upheaval. I've also been to the other masjid, the literal replica masjid in Lahore, which is the, uh, which is the Shahi uh, masjid there in Lahore, absolute replica. Uh, I just didn't get the same buzz in Lahore, right? As you get here in Delhi. Anyway, to get back to our history, the greatness of even the Muslim Mughals now could not last forever in India. And... Uh, because the region had been coveted by the Europeans. Not just the British, but others as well. But the British have played the main major part in here. So now starts the colonial area, uh, era, which has led finally to where we are right now. So at the beginning of the 18th century, about 180 million people lived in India. Remember, the whole population of the entire world was only about 2 billion until about uh, one and a half centuries ago. This 
uh, explosion, you know, this demographic explosion of population has been literally the last century because of fertilizer and a lot of other things like this, uh, medical advancements and things like this has gone to like seven, eight billion now. But otherwise, for much of history, the, the population never went beyond one to two billion anyway. So 180 million people lived in India, making them nearly a fifth of the world's population. It was a powerhouse, right? India was a powerhouse. Um, uh, the problem was that this whole human force was divided, right? Especially by this time now, it was divided and conflicting states, religion, ethnics, uh, ethnicity, sectarian, linguistic barriers cause issues, right? You can see that today as well, there's, uh, you know, just language change and it causes barriers, intermarriage issues and so on. Imagine then, you know. Nevertheless, India was very, very rich, huge amount of resources and but because of this weakness and division, that is what was exploited. Fertile environment it created for the colonizers. So the British in India did not enter its territory in huge numbers. They never entered in huge numbers. There were always a few. They just used the local populations to fight one another and do their dirty work. That was extremely strategic, what they did. And I can't go into the British East India Company. That's a whole history on its own. But essentially, that's, they came in as business people. They got some rights to do business. But eventually, they started taking over land. And they just looked down upon the people. After, from 1757 and onwards, they basically uh, rooted the French who also had interests. That's why you don't have French. You still have a bit of Portuguese influence on some, certain areas in India. But eventually, they gained control first of Bengal. That's why if you go to Calcutta today, that's where you see the most historical British buildings, English buildings, heritage buildings. You see some in other areas, but I've seen the most in Calcutta today, which is the capital of Bengal. Right? So... In, in, in 1820, India had one of the largest armies of the world, about 350,000 men, but almost all of them Indian. The French did this with the Algerians, but the, the British did this with the Indians. If you go to Sandhurst today, not Sandhurst, yeah, Sandhurst, is that right? The yeah, the military academy Sandhurst. You go to the passageways, you see many, uh, the glasswork and everything. It's all Indian, it's all sepoys and all these Indian commanders and all that. I was like amazed because they played a huge role in the British army. They were used by the British to do their work. So within a hundred years, the British had controlled the entire Indian subcontinent, Myanmar and even briefly Afghanistan. And I, I, I can't go into the history. This is a history on its own of how the Muslims and the Hindus worked together on many, on many occasions. Eventually they had to come together on certain occasions to try to get rid of the British because the British eventually became very crazy after the revolt. There was a revolt, right? And there's many stories about how that came about. On one occasion they, uh, they had introduced this new rifle called the Enfield rifle, which is much more powerful. And the cartridge in there was coated so that to protect it from the dryness. And this rumor went round that what you had to do with the cartridge, uh, the army, the, the people who were using the rifles, they had to use their teeth to tear off uh, the covering. And this rumor went round that that's made of either pork or cow grease or fat. That was, I mean, they were already being looked down upon, humiliated and disgraced and insulted and everything. And they just started a mutiny. They started a revolt after this. But... There, there wasn't much success, they were not very organized and so on, so eventually British really clamped down, they killed many, many people, among them, the majority probably were the Muslims. 
because the ulama, they were standing up for this. Thousands of ulama, according to one of the historians, he says that from the Chandi Chok of Delhi to the Jama Masjid, not a tree was without the hanging uh, corpse of a scholar. Uh, massive uh, massive um, trenches would be opened up and said, you need to say, and the ulama would be brought and say that you need to uh, say you're not against the British or you're not part of the freedom movement. If they don't, you get killed. Thousand madrasas in India, in Delhi alone, were wiped out. Thousand madrasas in uh, in Delhi alone were wiped out. That's the whole reason why eventually the scholar said. And then they had the Christian missionaries come in, and they started conversion. There were no Christians in in India before. Uh, they started conversions on mass. Now the ulama, that's when they sat down and they decided we need to do something about it. So that's why they chose Deoban at that time to start the madrasa. So there were many movements. That wasn't the only madrasa. They started one there six months later in Sahanpur, Muradabad and about five other places. But Deoban became the most well-known because they were the most politically active. Otherwise, Sahanpur had the greatest scholars at the time. More people from outside the country would come to Sahanpur to study. But Deoban became because they were part of the freedom movement. They were more so part of the freedom movement. They were activists, right? So uh, the, 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 the British, they took a lot of the, you know, the, the wealth of the country and they caused them to kill each other. And so then eventually the whole state breaks up and then eventually India uh, is split into uh, East and West Pakistan and then Bangladesh and you know, all of these other countries. That's uh, maybe for another time. But what I want to finish with today is the Muslim contributions to India in their 700 to 1000 years of rule of some of, or all of India. This is very important. So this is what the Muslims have provided. Number one, the oneness of God or the oneness of the Supreme God. Hindus believe in multiple deities. But the one thing that the Muslims have had an influence on the Hindus is that even the Hindus believe in one Khuda. They talked about the high one. They might have other deities, but they still have this very reinforced belief that one is the highest, right? It's still shirk with all the others in whatever form it is, but at least that was really, and this is by a KM Panika, he's discussed this, that Muslims helped the Hindus focus on the one supreme God among all the other deities, right? Number two, equality. That was a message brought by the Muslims. And I have already mentioned, this is something that even Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, one of the leaders of India later, he talked about the equality principle, that that's definitely something that the Muslims had had an impact on the Indian society. Right, because of through their caste system and so on. Then I've already mentioned to you how they used to go to Buddhism, escape to Buddhism first, then they started coming to Islam after that. Number three, the rights of women. Can you believe it? The rights of women. And what was that? The Hindus have, uh, it's a historical issue now, I don't think it happens much anymore. It's called Sati, right, or Sati. You know, what is it, with a Tashtid or without? Is it Sati or Sati? Sati, I've seen both spellings. Sati. So that was that a widow on her husband's death would literally burn herself alive on the top of her, the funeral, uh, uh, on the funeral uh, pyre, right? That was now one thing is many of the Muslim leaders, uh, moguls and others, they would not encroach on the religion. They would not try to get involved in it. However, on this particular issue, they would try to discourage people. They would discourage the women. Why are you doing this and so on? So, according to many historians, for example, Dr. Bernier, in his travels in the Mughal Empire, said that it has decreased a lot because of the Muslims. Okay, good. Five minutes, that's all I need. Number four, recording history. 
until the Muslims came, Hinduism has been there for centuries before, but until the Muslims came, came, there was no history of India, except what was found in the Ramayana and um, you know, the Gita, the, their religious books, the bit of historical incidents in there, there was no proper books on history, no record, record of history. Muslims have always loved history, you know, uh, uh, the various things about hadith and everything that gave rise to history of, in every sense, that's actually uh, allowed now uh, for a lot of the record of Indian history to be written. That's another Muslim influence. And number five would be upgrade of civilization, right? Uh, the Babur, the first ruler who'd come from Fargana and took over, he, he's got his memoirs. They're very interesting. He speaks about how there's no good horses in India. Now remember, these guys came from the steppes, right? Where they're horseback, they're doing everything. No good horses, no good meat. And believe me, the Uzbeks, you know, the, the, they love their meat. SubhanAllah, I've been there, they just love their meat. No good grapes, no good melons, no ice, no cold water, not many schools. Even their candles are primitive. He actually describes how, what kind of lamps they used to use. Right? I couldn't uh, you know, understand it fully, but he said cleanliness in general and no good clothing. They just go around in like one uh, wrap or something like that. That's what he said. Uh, Nehru tries to defend some of this and explain why. He says basically because of all of these incursions, especially in North India, he said the South Indians were faring better at that time. This is talking about North India. It's probably because they had so much chaos that they literally stunted their creativity. Wallahu alam. Right? Uh, we could definitely say that about some of our Muslim countries, they're on the defensive, so they just can't produce much, which is a problem, right? The Mughals, they really developed the fruits of the country. They really, a lot of the orchards and the fruits and the farming was really pushed by the Mughals. Sultan Mahmud ibn Muhammad Shah Gujarati is mentioned, right? He's no, known as uh, Mahmud Bigara, right? He added a lot of masjids, madrasas, lodges for travelers, orchards, rivers, and lots of other buildings, so irrigation canals and so on. And of course, the architecture. The Taj Mahal is generally what's, what's shown. And it's not just Taj Mahal, there's lots of buildings around the country, right? Unfortunately, a lot of them aren't looked after now as well as they should be. It's a heritage that they have that they don't really look after. Some people want to actually take down the Taj Mahal as well, unfortunately. But Taj Mahal is amazing. And I've been there, but I was told by one of the sheikhs of the local madrasa, that he was given a tour of that place by somebody who really knew the Taj Mahal. We saw the whole thing in about one and a half hours. You can do it in one hour. But he said that he was given of that and the, Delhi, uh, and the, and the red fort of there. He says, by half day, from morning time to half day, we'd only reached kind of halfway. Because everything is symbolic. Why a certain verse is mentioned on a certain arch, there's reason behind all of that. And again, you know, we can't get the zoom in all the time here because we don't have the time. Many roads and motorways were created in India by the Muslim rulers. One of the most well-known ones was laid down by Sher, Sher Shah Suri. And that is the one that stretches, and you guys from Bangladesh are going to have to help me out, from Sunargaon in Bangladesh. Where is that? What, is that what you call it? It's close to Dhaka. It's close to Dhaka. Is that how you say it? Or is it Shunargaon? Okay, I better say it properly. Shunargaon, right? In Bangladesh to the Nilab in Sindh in Pakistan. You know how long that is? 4,832 kilometers. For, for us, 3,000 
and two miles long. And that used to be, yeah, that's probably why they started there because Shunargaon was the capital. I still need to visit Bangladesh, I need to go to Habiganj, yes. I need to go to Gulafganj, and I need to go to Jagannathpur, <laughs> right? And uh, inshallah, very soon. Okay, let me not get you guys excited, right? Because I've got one minute left. Anyway, now that, that was the road, okay, 3,000 mile road, but you know what was more interesting? There was a travel lodge. Not the travel lodge of today. There was a travel lodge, a musafir khana, every three kilometers. And each of them had, this is what the history says, I've not gone to check it out. Large pot of, a large dig, a large pot for Muslims and one for Hindus. A masjid and a postal system with two horses on the ready to go from one stage to the next. It's an amazing system. They'd all created all of that. The Muslim have come in and they stayed there and they developed the country. They didn't come there from outside and take away the riches. All of them came to stay there, right? If you look at a lot of the reviews today, they say that they came and plundered and where did they go? They stayed in India, they died in India, right? They died in India. They developed the country, they made it their home and they made it what it was. Right? There's no way that you can, unfortunately when you look online, I was checking and when you look at, uh, you know, because of the current scene and so on, they try to discredit, they're trying to rewrite the history of this. But there you go, that's basically a snapshot, really. You know, that's really just a snapshot, there's just so much more that we can discuss. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring about goodness and ascendancy. Uh, and uh, especially for the believers and the Muslims, may Allah, uh, may Allah bring back uh, goodness there and stability there and peace there. And for all of this, a lot of the time they were lived in a lot of peace. May Allah bring that back. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules and at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.